thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Dr. Andy Gulpin. Andy is a professor of kinesiology at the Center for Sports Performance at California State University, has a PhD in human bioenergetics, and is the founder and director of the Biochemistry and Molecular Exercise Laboratory. In today's show, we debunk the common exercise myths for fat loss, muscle gain, and endurance performance. You will learn the importance of adherence, variety and balance, the key energy systems and training sessions you need to achieve your specific goal, and why long-term health should always be your number one priority. Let's dive straight in. Hi, Andy, and welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Really excited for our conversation today. I'd love just to set the scene for the benefit of our listeners to, or for you, to tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, your mission, and what you're up to these days. Yeah, so um, I guess my what I do for a living is split into three parts, if you will. So I'm a, a full-time professor at Cal State Fullerton University. Uh, I'm the director for what's called the Center for Sport Performance. So uh, that means I have three real missions, if you will. Um, part one is, is we conduct and perform research on human performance. So we personally specialize in the muscle biopsy. So we take muscle samples from athletes and try to learn, help, and improve sport performance. And then the second piece of that is, um, of course, I teach a lot of classes in the area of sports nutrition, performance, muscle, strength and conditioning. Uh, and then uh, the third part, and what I probably... Well, I don't know if I'll say enjoy the most, but I enjoy a lot is, is I actually work with athletes. So I work a lot with uh, combat sport athletes, wrestlers, boxers, uh, UFC fighters, things like that. So that's uh, pretty much what I, what I do for a daily living. Very cool. I love it. The muscle biopsy must be so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's quite fun. Mm, absolutely. Except for the subject, perhaps. <laughs> uh, it's not that big a deal. No, no, I'm sure it's, um, it, well, it seems normal to you now at least. Now, we got you on the show because um, I personally love debunking myths and misconceptions. And as you're the expert in, you know, human biochemistry, I really wanted to, yeah, I guess, focus on training specific myths and you know we'll dive into a few of those together today but I just wanted to um I guess set the scene from the aerobic and anaerobic point of view just to educate our listeners on the difference and um you know how you would go about classifying these Oh, that's a, that's a deep question. <laughs> deep end. Yep. Uh, it just depends on, you know, it's funny. I did a podcast a couple of years ago and somebody asked me that question and we literally spent an hour and a half on that question. Mm -hmm. So I assume you don't want to go that far. Um, <laughs> no, maybe the elevator people, pitch. 
<laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, fair enough. M- most people have a rudimentary understanding, which is that the anaerobic energy systems are what you use to generate uh, your quick bouts of, or bursts of energy that power you for your first, say, couple of minutes of all exercise, and then aerobic uh, takes over. And what that really means is the anaerobic specifically is that you're generating uh, metabolic energy without the necessity of having oxygen. Oxygen is not a fuel source, but it is a requirement for production of aerobic um, energy. So essentially what happens is for the anaerobic exercise, uh, you actually require energy too quickly for you to be able to process oxygen and use it as a byproduct. And so you switch to the form of generating energy, which does not require oxygen. I think one of the major confusions in that comes in though that that it's a switch that's it that it's an on-off that it's a teeter-totter um, that these systems are, are working against each other so it's anaerobic or it's aerobic and, and that's really not the appropriate way to think about these things um, i like to use an analogy that is more akin to a gear where if you have a bicycle that has multiple gears on it just because you're losing a low gear that's not harming or hurting the high gear you have them so that you can s- switch back and forth uh, so we can use what's what's optimal at the right or at the most specific time. So, and a lot of times, in, like just like in the case of a gear, uh, a lot of the times one of them actually helps the other one. So these are not competing systems; they're not fighting over each other. Um, they're one of them is the byproducts of some of them are actually leading directly to improving the effectiveness of the other. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point, and obviously the myth is then that I guess, well, actually, no, you tell me, what have you seen in in the health space around where people, um, I guess, have been educated to feel they should focus the the predominant part of their training and and which which energy system? Yeah, okay, that's really, actually, I was literally working on some slides this second before we started this conversation dealing with this, so I'll just sort of take over from right there. Uh, and that's, I, I think, one of the biggest misunderstandings globally from the general consumer's perspective is a fundamental misunderstanding between uh, the adaptations or the reasons you do these things. So most people think, uh, and for good reason, that hey, anaerobic uh, activities are things that you do if you know you're a sportsman or woman. Uh, you do anaerobic if you're trying to get in better shape for a sport, or you're trying to grow more muscle. But you do aerobic if you're trying to lose fat, or you do aerobic if you're trying to be healthy. And those, those distinctions are not only massively wrong, but I think they're actually extremely dangerous and harmful. They, 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 they cause a lot of problems with people, and they make it so that people go in the wrong direction. They compromise the effectiveness, and they end up effectively ruining people's exercise goals because they're not getting what they want because they're getting very, very, very bad advice. So step number one is really stepping back and understanding the fundamental difference between these two and that you know, I'll give you a tangible example that if you go to the physician and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm a little bit overweight and I haven't been exercising well and the doctor says you need to eat better, lose some weight and you need to get in shape. And we jump to things like, okay, um, therefore I have to start jogging for half an hour every day. And that's, that's, not only is that fundamentally wrong, but that's probably going to lead you in the wrong direction. You're probably going to be worse off because of that. So those are some of the big misconceptions that we don't really tend to think or we don't really think through these things and say, well, what am I actually needing uh, in this context? Like, what does it mean to be healthy? 
Um, what does it physically mean to be healthy? And then can I, do I have to dress it that way or can I address it another way? So those are some of the big ticket misconceptions around the energy systems is fundamentally not understanding what they're doing and how they're relating to physical function. Yeah, and do you think, or what are your thoughts on where that stems from? Like we can probably segue in, into food for a moment because of that, the old calorie fallacy around maybe the jogging is recommended because of the, like the fact that it looks like it's burning more calories. Yeah, that, that's part of it. I actually think it's a little bit different. Um, mm. I was fortunate to where when I did my PhD, I did it under a guy named Dave Costell, who's one of the, the founding exercise physiologists in the world, really, and definitely in the States. Um, and so I have a pretty good perspective of the history of how this entire field progressed. And in large part, it's not, not due to malice. I mean, these people weren't, sometimes they get depicted as like deceiving people on purpose or doing this weird thing. So what, what simply happened was the first uh, generation of exercise physiologists just really liked endurance running. Like that was their jam. They liked swimming, they liked cycling. And so they just did a bunch of the studies in those areas, they weren't not doing other things because they didn't want to deceive people, but part of what you do for a living is what you really enjoy. So they love jogging, they love running, they love swimming. So they did a bunch of studies on it. And it turns out if you don't do anything and then you start doing a lot of quote unquote endurance exercise or aerobic exercise, it's probably pretty good for your heart. And, and that's generally true, but where these people lacked is the foresight of saying, well, you haven't ever done anything else. Uh, physically, and so you don't know that nothing else will work. It's it's an error of omission, right? So just because there's no evidence to show that it, it was working, that doesn't that's not evidence that it doesn't work. Um, so that I think is a lot of the legacy of of how these things got started, and then basically making fallacies of correlation versus causation. So it's saying things like, well, if the if my heart is the problem, why don't I do things that are cardiovascularly limited? And again, that's just a, it's just a, a short side of not really thinking through what, what things are all possible. And if you want to talk about nutrition, that's, it's the same thing, but just you, you'll exchange out the variables. We have the same basic logic breakdowns that, that led us to this place. And so we have all these, all, all this advice going around that's, you know, that's just clearly ineffective. We've got decades of research now that suggests, you know, when you have somebody in your position, as a physician, you have somebody in your room. And you tell them, all right, you need to start eating better and start doing more cardio. They're, they're not going to do it. So we just need to change what we're saying because it's clearly not working. Yeah, fascinating. So what would be the main reason that aerobic exercise or the example of jogging that you gave mm -hmm. um, before, why would that perhaps take you away from a weight loss goal rather than towards? So, yeah, th th thank you. That's a very good follow-up. Because I do want to clarify that. First of all, it can absolutely work. Mm. No doubt. Um, I know a lot of people. I've worked with them. I have a lot of students. If I ask them, like, how many of you like jogging for an hour? And, and some percentage of people love it. And I have seen there's hundreds of thousands of people that have lost a tremendous amount of weight by doing only, only by making only one physical change in life, and that's by jogging or swimming or cycling. So it absolutely can work. Um, so, again, thank you for bringing this up because my point was actually it doesn't have to just be that. That doesn't have to even be a part of the equation if you don't want it to be. There's no reason that there's no magic there. It's, it's simply movement, right? It's, it's exercise. And if that's one particular type of exercise you enjoy, great. But for those of us that, and this is where I mentioned it could actually detract, is if you hate it and it becomes now a deterrent where you're like, I'm not going to do anything, 
because I, my only option is jogging for an hour and I hate jogging for an hour. Therefore, I'm not going to do anything. Therefore, to hell with it, I'm just going to live my life and I'll just take a drug or things like that. Um, so it can be a deterrent. It can actually put people off of a healthy lifestyle because they hate it so much and they think that's their only option. In addition, running uh, specifically, most people mechanically are very, very bad at it, which, which sounds funny to say because you're know, like, everybody can run. Well, actually, no, not everybody can run. And so the injury rates are really, really high with recreational runners because they don't know how to run. They just jump into mileage and now all of a sudden they're hurt, they're out, which usually ends up meaning, again, the hell with this. I'm not going to do that. Last time I did it, my knee hurt for three weeks. I'm out. So, so those are the consequences potentially of somebody thinking I have to do this for my health um, and could be detrimental. Yeah, for sure. Awesome to clarify that point. Yeah, thank you. When we talk about the energy systems, obviously the difference between aerobic and anaerobic, you have clarified that for us. But how do we work out what sort of combination we need to, I guess, develop into our training program? Oh, that's a a really good question. And the answer is it is hyper-specific. So maybe I'll ask you a follow-up and then I'll, I'll, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, so um, the the question I would kick back to you, Steph, would be, uh, you know, do you have a, a specific goal in mind or do you have a specific athlete or training scenario in mind? Then maybe we can tackle it that way. Yeah, cool. So let's let's do a few. Um, so let's start with that weight loss environment as, you know, mm-hmm. a follow-on from that previous point. And I'd love then to talk to you about some um, some muscle mass goals and maybe some endurance athletes if time permits. Cool, perfect. Let's do mm-hmm. that. Great. I'll, I'll let you keep us on track with all three of those. Sure. <laughs> uh, fat loss is the first yeah, one, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So the, the key and the data will show this, um, the metabolic data will show this, the muscle data will show this, and the long-term outcomes. So 20, 30-year outcomes will show this as well. The number one key to fat loss for exercise is adherence. Mm. So you have got to put people in a position to succeed. So I will give you some concepts in terms of the exercise and the energy systems and all that, absolutely, but you have to keep in mind all that goes out the window and, or that's all trumped by adherence. Uh, and there's a fine line between somebody just showing up saying, well, I don't want to do that. Like sometimes you have to say, well, tough shit, like just go, go, go do it. But if, it's, if it means they're not going to do anything, if you drop off adherence too much, um, it, this all goes out the window. So keep that in mind that your number one goal when you're helping somebody lose weight from an exercise prescription is working with them as much as you can to maximize effort and adherence. Them showing up five days a week or six days a week or four days a week or whatever it is and doing something will always win in the long term. So that's key. That's critical. Now, having said that, my general recommendation is a bit of a mix. So if, if you do, let's say for the average person, one day a week, and what I call long duration endurance. So I don't classify things as aerobic or anaerobic. I actually split them down into further subcategories with the longest, slowest being long duration endurance. So this is what most people think of with your classic cardio, right? This is 30 plus minutes of relatively steady state exercise, right? 30, 45, doesn't matter if you want to jog, cycle, swim, if you want to drag a tire, if you want to push a sled the whole time. I don't care what modality you pick, but we want you to be able to move for 30 plus minutes straight. So we'll call that day one of the week. Maybe day two of the week, you're going to do something 
more at what I'll call aerobic capacity. So this is something that's going to take you up to a maximum heart rate or what in science we would call a VO2 max, the maximum volume of oxygen you can consume. This is probably going to take most people between 5 to 12 minutes. So this is something like if you've ever run track, you would do, you know, you would run a mile as fast as you can. And then maybe that's it for the day. Or maybe you wait that equivalent time. So say it takes you 10 minutes to jog that mile or, you know, sort of jog sprint the mile or whatever you got to do. And you take 10 minutes off and then you do that again. Something like that. So something that's going to really challenge your maximal heart rate. And then that's maybe Wednesday's workout. And then, or day two's workout, doesn't matter what day. And then day three's workout would be more what we would call higher intensity. And so now you're in that, what would be anaerobic, uh, the glycolytic part of the anaerobic and the lactic acid part of the, of the energy systems. And now this is more of your classic high intensity intervals. So this could be bouts that are between 30 seconds long, maybe up to two or three minutes. And you would rest for a certain amount of time. Maybe, you know, typically something like a one-to-one -one is pretty good. So if you're, if you're exercising for one minute, you take one minute rest. And then you repeat that five to six to seven to 10, 12 times, depending on what you're doing. Uh, those, those ratios, by the way, there's nothing magical to them. If you want to work for one minute and rest for a minute and a half, fine. If you want to work for one minute, rest for two minutes. If you want to work for 30 seconds, rest for 45 seconds. It doesn't matter. In fact, I thoroughly encourage people to change that up a lot. That actually helps in adherence because you do something fun and different all the time. It's not just like, oh, today's Friday. This is when I do my one minute on, one minute off. So every time you get like, eh. So, <laughs> you know, do, do, do 45 on 15 off. 45 seconds really hard, 15 seconds rest, and do that for five rounds. And the next Friday, do the opposite, where you go 20 seconds as hard as you can. You rest for 45 seconds. And do it again. These are all going to work slightly different energy systems within that subcategory because it gets even more detailed down from there. And all of these things are going to, you know, uh, hit different little areas, which is what you're looking for. And then the last day, if you could get four days in, would be something that adds uh, to muscle mass. So one of the common mistakes people make is you have to have sufficient high quality muscle mass to lose weight. And so something where you know, you're more specifically closer to that hypertrophy strength training range. Um, so this is something like, for most people, three to four sets of eight to 12 repetitions at 60, 70% of your max. And you do four or five exercises, you know, one for each body part, something like that. So that would be the goal. Um, you know, that would get you a very, very well-rounded fat loss program. If you can't get four days a weekend, that's fine. Just kind of rotate those four things through. So maybe you only get two workouts in a week. So week one, you do the long one, then or day one, week one, and day one, two, week two, you get the idea. So it's actually a two-week rotation that you'll get all four things done in two weeks. Um, or three, you can adjust from there. But that would be the, the basic tenets of what I would look for for a fat loss program. Cool. I like it. Yeah, really good. And obviously, a lot of those sessions are actually relatively short. So from just okay. an efficiency point of view, we're not actually asking you to do hours and hours of exercise to achieve that fat loss goal, which is definitely the myth that we've come back to with that calorie fallacy of eat less, move more, and so on. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, the, the long duration day is, you know, by definition, at least sort of 30 minutes plus hmm. a solid warm-up, a movement you know, routine, 
mobility, whatever you need to do. Uh, but the rest of those, none of those workouts should really take you much more than 45 minutes, including your warm-up, including your stretching or whatever other stuff you're doing. Um, and the last little piece I'll add to that is I would also encourage an extreme amount of variety with the types of exercises you do. So don't just jog every day. Um, I talked about that for long duration, but the same thing for the interval days. Uh, sometimes do kettlebells, sometimes do a dumbbell circuit, sometimes do a bodyweight circuit, sometimes do a, a combination where you do a little bit of running and a little bit of lifting and you know, like mix it up. So do a lot of things. Sometimes play a sport um, if you can manage those things. Sometimes get in the pool and do your intervals in the pool. Why not? Whatever, whatever you can do, um, mix up the variety so that none of your joints and ligaments and muscles get uh, too much volume in the exact same motion, especially if you're not great with your skill. If you don't have too much volume in that area, it'll keep you away from those nagging injuries. Mm. Yeah, great point. Awesome. So then how would the program differ for someone that is looking to put on muscle rather than lose body fat? Yeah. Okay, good. So if the goal is to put on muscle, if it's exclusively to put on muscle, um, of course you would probably eliminate that, that long duration day. Um, it would also probably eliminate that maximal aerobic capacity day. You could probably keep one day a week of the, of the interval because that's, that actually can help a little bit with promoting muscle growth, depending also if you're trying to lean out a little bit. So if you're trying to get more tone or whatever phrase you like to look, adding that little bit of conditioning in there will actually help you strip some body fat, which will make the muscle appear to look bigger. Even though it's not bigger, it might look better. So if you're really just trying to look like you have more muscle, um, I would add a little bit of that interval stuff in maybe just to keep the fitness as well. So just to clarify, that's the high intensity session where you spoke about the variety between say 30 seconds up to sort of three minutes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Awesome. Or you could even, you could even keep the, the uh, maximal aerobic day too, the, the 8 to 10, 12-minute thing. Mm-hmm. You could keep that one day, or you could switch back and forth. So you, maybe you have one day a week that you do conditioning, and maybe one week you do the high-intensity intervals, like the, the minute-on, minute-off thing. Maybe the next week you do up to 10 minutes you know, of maximal thing, and you kind of rotate the conditioning days through. Mm-hmm. That'd be pretty good. Um, but the rest of your days, if you're trying to isolate muscle mass, if you step back and look at the mechanisms of what causes muscle to grow, if you just address in your program those mechanisms, if you hit those concepts, the methods you pick don't matter nearly as much. And so the concepts are you've, you've got to overload and overwork the muscle a little bit. If you do it too much and you're so sore you can't work out again for the next week and a half or two weeks, it's not actually going to help you grow anymore. So another common myth in this area is that People assume the more sore they get, that means the more muscle they're going to grow. <laughs> and that's fundamentally not true. Um, you have to, you have to sort. You don't have to be sore, but being sore is a, is an okay indication because if you if it, the workout was so easy that you know it didn't really challenge the muscle, then you're not going to grow, of course. But you know, if you're, if, if you're, a, we take a scale of one to 10, 10 being, you know, so sore, you can't even go to work the next day. Uh, if you go to a seven one day and the next time you train, you go to an eight, you're not growing any more muscle. Even if you go to a nine or a 10, the difference between a seven and a 10 is the exact same amount of actual muscle growth. The difference between a two and a seven is probably significant, but you don't need to be much more than like 
you should wake up the next day and the day after just kind of, ah, all right, I'm a, I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little tight there. I'm a little stiff. Um, but you know, it's not crazy, but oh yeah, I can feel that hamstring. Like, yep, I can feel it. We did the hamstrings yesterday, whatever. That's, that's probably about as hard as you need to, to shoot to for most people. Um, advanced people, of course, this is a little bit different, but that, that's all we need to really get to. So the workouts themselves, um, you really honestly have a lot of flexibility. There's, there's generally two areas that I will tell people, or I'll, I'll just call it three targets to go for. So maybe one day a week, hit it, uh, lift down in that closer into that strength range, which is like as heavy as you can for five to eight repetitions, something like that. And you'll do, you know, three to four to five sets, again, depending on how trained or untrained you are. And you do maybe one lift per or one exercise per muscle group if you want, depending on how you're, you're breaking your days up. And then the next time you train, you go a little bit more into that pure hypertrophy zone, which is more of like 8 to 12 to 15 repetitions per set. And then say if you had a third day, you might go all the, all the way up to 20, 25, 30, 40 repetitions per set. There's no real magic here. And what that allows you to do is, is some of the physiological mechanisms of growth, um, some of them are what we call metabolic disturbances, which is the burn, right? It's the pump. Like, that's okay. You sh if you walk out feeling like, yeah, my muscle feels nice and pumped, then you're probably in the pretty good area for hypertrophy. The other mechanism is, you know, had to be something really strong, really heavy. And so if one of the days you're like, yeah, I felt really good, that was kind of heavy, and another day you're like, oh, I really got the burn today, I got the pump, uh, that's probably going to put you in a pretty good area. And the details beyond that, they're not super important. I'm not saying they don't matter at all, but for most people, that's way down the road. Um, they don't need to worry about that too much for now. Yeah, so that was one of my questions that I flagged in the fat loss conversation. It sounds like it applies here too. Is it more that, you know, you just need to really focus on, firstly, adherence, secondly, variety, um, mm -hmm. especially when you're beginning, and then obviously the more elite you are, the more the nuances are important in terms of things like duration, rep sets, so on? That's exactly right. And I'll actually have a third one to that. Mm. So number one, adherence. Number two, variety. Number three is balance. Mm -hmm. mm. So I don't mean like balance, like are you falling over off your feet or not? What I mean is balancing between like the joints. So if you're, you know, if you're, if, if you're trying to gain muscle mass and all you're doing is what we call horizontal pressing. So this is a pressing movement that goes horizontal to your body. And a good example would be say a bench press. Right? And if all you're doing is horizontal pressing and all your exercises, say you do a bench press and you do a chest fly and then you do dumbbell bench press, well, eventually you just did three horizontal pressing movements, but you didn't do any overhead pressing movements and you didn't do any horizontal pulling movements. And so you're not balancing the shoulder joint front and back or left and right. Mm. And so that eventually is going to lead to all kinds of problems in your shoulders. So you want variety, but you want to have a reasonable balance between all the joints and all the ways they contract. Now you don't have to be perfectly balanced and you shouldn't even worry about that, but just try to have a reasonable balance between, okay, my shoulder can do these two or three different things. So I need to make sure, you know, that I'm kind of hitting every one of these things on occasion. And I know that my hips can do you know, these two things and my knees can do these two things and my 
back of my leg to this. And as long as you keep the joints reasonably balanced, left and right, front and back, and you know between the right one and the left one, then you're going to stay away from injuries. You're very unlikely to get hurt um, or get overuse injuries if you can keep that balance between the systems there. Yeah, awesome. So one, adherence, two, variety, and three, balance, as in across the joints. That's awesome in terms of a nice summary there. Now, our final group was the endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to talk here about, if you could, maybe some percentages on the aerobic to anaerobic, as well as those examples in terms of a week or a number of sessions. Um, could you maybe clarify? I'm not sure I understand what do you mean by the percentages between them. Cool. So what we see in the endurance space is, that, you know, for a very long time it was all more is more and faster is uh-huh. better. And so we were seeing people do, you know, 80 to 100% what was anaerobic, um, overtraining, oh, okay. you know, fatigue. Percentage of heart rate. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So um, it really depends on what you mean by endurance. Um, performance so for example in the in the sports that i work with um my boxers you know they'll, they'll fight uh 12 three minute rounds and my olympic wrestlers you know it's it's like sometimes a five minute round and my ufc fighters are five five minute rounds so those are all actually very 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 different types of endurance and that's mm-hmm. all very different than some of my nfl players and that's very different than somebody who's doing a triathlon so it really depends on what type of endurance. Do you have one maybe in mind that you're would be? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a really good point to make. So thank you for clarifying that. And let's do triathlons. Okay. So I will tell you, I've, I've, I have very little experience <laughs> with triathletes. I've helped a couple and a couple of ultra marathoners and stuff, but, but not a tremendous amount. But the, the gist of it is, is this. I would actually point you to a book called Unbreakable Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's by a guy named Brian McKenzie. And the book takes people from their first ever 5K all the way up to their first marathon, I think. And it t- shows you exactly uh, how to do it. has programs in there and everything. And it's a very, very good book. And I, I, I really fundamentally agree with how they program over the long term, mm-hmm. uh, which is really answering the question of what percentages to be in what. So my my basic answer would be, you need to do something like 60% of your training should be what I'd call practice, right? So this is when you're out, you're running. Let's say you're, you're running or cycling or something, doesn't matter, but you're, you're practicing those skills. You're becoming more efficient. So these are probably being done between uh, 60 and 80% of your heart rate, something like that, maybe a little less. Um, it's not a tremendous amount of volume, like you're, you're a little bit tired when you finish, but don't get crushed. The idea is you want to be very conscious and aware of your technique the whole time. So are you breathing properly? Are you relaxed? Are you landing in the right spot? Is your stroke looking great? Are you is your knee caving in just slightly? Yes or no? All those very technical aspects of, of paying attention to it. You should be able to do that every day, right? So if, if it's so much where you're getting tired from those, you're doing too far or too fast. So 60% of your workouts roughly are practicing the skill set and you're adding volume, you're adding endurance, you're getting fitter that way. But the real goal is to just get better at the movement. About uh, 30% of your days, 
would be more what we would call competition days. So these are a lot higher intensities. Um, they're basically up to, to maximal intensity. Um, and you're not going to go full distance your competition or even close, but you'll do some sort of percentage of it. And your goal is to try to beat, say, get a PR. Um, you know, you're going to do a 5K swim or, or 5K run or whatever it's going to be, and you want to try to hit a 5K PR or close or something like that. So you're still focusing on your technique, but you're really trying to, to get out there and do better. Uh, and then 10% of your days would be more of like what we call mental toughness, where you're going to do some hellacious interval, some sort of cycle thing, and you're just going to go absolutely nuts. You're going to try to maintain position, but the goal is to just get as, as waxed physically as you possibly can. So that's an extremely high intensity. Uh, and those take a, a decent amount of days to recover from. You only end up doing one or two of those a month. You end up doing four or five of the competition days. And the other 10 or 12 workouts throughout the month are those practice days. Uh, and that's a model that uh, is actually used by a guy named Kenny Kane. So K-E-N-N-Y-K-A-N-E. And it, I, I found it to be very, very good. Brian McKenzie in that book has a little bit different system. Uh, but but actually, it's funny because the system Brian uses is very similar to what I laid out for the fat loss system, um, with the only exception being that hypertrophy day that we talked about in the fat loss It is probably more um, shifted out in place would be a, a true strength or a power day. And so one of the big mistakes that endurance athletes um, make is they don't add any true power or true strength to their workout. And this is this is critical. Um, the research is extremely clear that if you take out 30 or more percent of your volume, so say you're running 35 or say you're running 50 miles a week, if you take 30% of those miles out and in that place you put in some power training or some strength training, that your performance will actually go up significantly while reducing the mileage. So and that's the type of stuff with Brian Wayla where it's it's making sure you have a combination. It's still mostly endurance based, but you can't omit the high intensity intervals. And you can't omit the strength and power training as well. Yeah, amazing. And I think that strength training conversation leads us well into another myth that we see in the training space. Um, certainly, I think endurance athletes are very guilty of if they've got more time, they added another run rather than going to the gym. Absolutely. And then when we go back to our body fat conversation and not to be sexist, it's largely women who have that fear around weight training. Um, So what are your Mm -hmm. thoughts in in here and and what myths are you exposed to? Well, my thoughts are I'm glad you said it and I didn't have to. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) keeps me less likely to get in trouble. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it just, it really, it, it's sort of funny because I almost don't even like talking about this anymore because there's so much evidence now. I'm like, yeah. are we still having this conversation? But it is important, you're right, because a lot of people are still not doing it um, correctly. But uh, pick your poison. If you want to look at the outcomes, in other words, the studies that show who has a better result, it's very, very, very clear that if you add the, the lifting in there, the fat loss is going to be significantly enhanced. You want to look at it from a mechanism perspective. So not only do we know what happens, but I, we could tell you the exact proteins. We know the gene programs that are responsible for it. 
We know the exact physiology of what's happening. Uh, we know the hormones. All of these things are so, I'm not talking about one paper. These are, these are fields of study. These are hundreds of scientific studies from dozens of laboratories, if not hundreds of laboratories across the world that are all showing these things. So it, it's just really a, a ship that's long sailed in terms of there's no question that that's, that's optimal. That's how it's best working. I think the the real productive and, and fun conversation now is, okay, how do we build systems that actually get people to do them? In other words, how do we make the strength training part more fun or how do we make it more accessible? How do we make it easier to do? How do we demystify it or you know reduce some of the myths like you're doing here so that people do the right things and they save time? I think that is where the conversation really will evolve to because it's, it's just so clear scientifically that that's the better approach. So if people aren't doing it, then to me that says, okay, we've got some sort of communication uh, breakdown somehow, and let's see what we can do to rebuild that. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, obviously you work in this space day in, day out, and for me it's more around real food, and I sort of feel like, oh, my God, are we still having this conversation that (laughs) we're still telling people to cut out the refined foods but we are and I think a lot of that is because of the myths that we've been exposed to for a lot of people their entire life or it's you know it's at least 50 you know 50 years um for those that you know a little bit older that it is a lot of behavioral change and I think certainly the education and you know exactly what you said how we communicate this is a big part of it so people can realize that what they've I guess believed is what has been wrong yeah, I think part of that, you know, because I, I, I agree entirely, the, the biggest part, in my opinion, is, and this is actually why you see so many people that are practitioners in the space are, are moving towards that behavioral stuff, and everyone wants to learn that thing because we are starting to realize, okay, we all know the right answer here, but it's not working. Let's learn these other skills of, get, of, of getting people to do things they don't want to do. And the other thing I, I think, I, the other part I think is the real problem is confusion. Um, so many there's so many predatory companies and so many predatory people trying to use the scare tactics uh, and i love I love Malcolm Gladwell's article on the the Pima paradox. I think it was in the, the New York Times in like nineteen ninety nine and in there I'm not sure if you're familiar with this article, but he went through like ten or twelve really popular diet books at the time, and he broke down the the fact that they were all using the exact same marketing strategy and it's crazy because every time you look at uh, uh, an infomercial or a facebook ad or somebody talking it's crazy how they all use exact same pitch which is they start off by convincing you that some some terrible thing has happened and then they move into um some sort of scare tactic right you're gonna die or this would happen then they move into i alone found this amazing secret hidden in the in the tomb somewhere that no one else knew of, right? And I have this magical cure. And then, oh yeah, by the way, you don't have to do absolutely anything. This is the easiest thing you'll ever do. And that whole system apparently is very, very effective for getting people to do it. And then people do it and it turns out it doesn't work. And then they're like, well, the hell with this. And so there's so much confusion and so many people contributing to the noise out there. So many people wanting attention. And then people try these very fringe or short-sighted approaches. It doesn't work. They spent a lot of money. They you know, focus on this for six months and now they're in a worse spot. Now they're really pissed off and they're just not going to come back to it at all. So I, I think one of the biggest approaches is we've got to get people to think bigger through these things and cut down on all the the real predatory 
marketing and, and products out there and people like us that are, you know, supportive of, of the real evidence-based stuff and saying, oh, like, this is, you know, like things like real food. Um, like, these are the basic approaches that I don't know anyone who's arguing with. And if they are, it's probably because they're trying to sell you something. Hmm. And so hopefully we just keep pushing through and say, like, no, 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 folks, like, let's, let's help those people who aren't nerds in this field that want to spend all day like you and I do reading these things. People just want to know the answer. Let's see if we can communicate just the basics to them in a way that's entertaining and inspiring, and we can cut through as much of that noise as possible. And then maybe that'll give people the inspiration they need to just start making a couple of changes. And once they feel that change, then maybe we'll have inspired them to actually take a few more steps. Yeah, I completely agree. And obviously acknowledging there is no magic pill in terms of no. whether it is fat loss or, or muscle gain or being a great endurance athlete. It's, yeah, it's the building blocks and definitely all the foundations that uh, people are guilty of neglecting because we're in this world where, you know, we are looking for that product or, or that, yeah, that magic pill, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, it's funny because, you know, that's human nature, right? We, we've been wanting that from day one. We're going to always want that. I don't think there's any way around that, but how many more times do we have to be fooled? It's like how many generations that go by when we're like, no, no, okay, this is the problem. And then 10 years come by. Okay. It wasn't that it was now this. Okay. Now, now it's not that now it's this. Like how many times in our life do we have to see that before we realize, okay, it's not going to be one thing. There's never going to be one thing they turn around and find out and go, no, no, no. Finally, we're the generation that figured it all out. Like, this is the problem. Sorry, folks. It's, it's never going to happen. And we have to get rid of that idea and just start going, all right, what are the biggest things I can tackle that are the easiest and most effective things I can just start with? And, and I'm going to stop wasting my time just waiting around for a magic cure. Mm. Yes, and how to eat elephant, right? It's one bite at a time. So it is about those behavioural changes and, and not needing to necessarily do, you know, too much too soon or trying to, yeah, make that overnight change that we're guilty of, you know, it's a trap that we're guilty of falling into. Yeah, it's, it's to me, like this is one of the things that we, one of the major points of, that I laid out in, a, in my book, which is just like, okay, if we can start moving things from motivation, because motivation is very waning and it only lasts, uh, you know, 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, something like that. And we start moving things over into long-term sustainable practices. Then I'm not actually having to worry about any motivation. It's just, just something you do. And then five years down the road, you look back and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I used to do that. And I can't believe how hard it was to get out of it. Now I can't, like I do this every day. I can't believe that was even hard to do. And that's the long-term stuff we have to start building towards. And so when we start working with clients, we need to start thinking about from a training perspective, um, what they call with kids, it's called long-term athletic development. But to me, that's the same thing. So if I have a 55-year-old client come in, I'm still trying to think, okay, what's this long-term athletic development look like? Because I'm on a, my brain is on a 30 or 40 or 50-year training plan. Like, I want to make sure this 55-year-old is awesome at 85. And so we're building for that. And the same thing with the food. Like, what's the long-term strategy here? What do we have to do to get this person into a position of success? And what, what sustainable practices, not short-term motivations, um, can we improve? So the short-term motivations tend to be things like, you know, did I lose the weight? Yes or no. Okay, well, that, that, that's not really 
what the focus is. It should be on the bigger picture things like, do you really understand what it truly means to be healthy? Right? Do you know what actually determines whether or not you're going to be, how long you're going to live? Right? Do you understand these, what are the most significant predictors of mortality? What, what are the most significant predictors of how long you will live independently? Oh, that's why we're working on this thing. That's why we're doing this type of training program. I know you're interested in losing as many pounds as you can the next month, and that's great. We're gonna work. That is a part of the program too. But this is really what we're after. You said you wanted to be healthy, and this is this is what health really means. So it's redefining those things for people, and I think that's eye-opening and going like, oh man, like hell yeah, I want to do those squats today because I want to keep living by myself and not have to live in an assisted living home when I'm 75. So those are the type of conversations I think we want to have. Oh, I agree. And I love when a client comes in and, you know, we, the first conversation we have is, all right, what are your goals and sort of why are you here context? And I love when someone, you know, shares that their first goal is health. Like you mm-hmm. just know that person has their ducks in line because, you know, I'm all for supporting someone with a body fat loss goal. But I think if that's your first goal, you're missing the picture because obviously, firstly, you can't lose body fat without having that foundation of health. And obviously our perspective is, yeah, that we have to have health as our number one priority for lots of reasons beyond what we look like or how we're performing today. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, one thing that I'm, I want to go into that a little bit further because most people that, that come to me, almost nobody comes to me and says my goal is health. Mm. And, you know, I work with athletes, but even when I used to work with the general population, I still never got that, but I got a lot of body fat. I got a lot of muscle, but you know, what's what I found out almost every time. If you ask them what, what we call the three whys. So you just ask them why three times in a row. Um, I know John Berardi does this with precision nutrition. They do it for five times. Like I generally found you three times. So they come in and they say, all right, you know, why are you here? And they say, okay, I want to lose body fat. So that was your first why. And then you say, okay, well, why do you want to lose body fat? This is your second why. And then they always have an answer. And then you say, okay, well, why do you want to do that? By the third why, it almost always comes back down to something health related. Mm. Right? And so it's like, well, why do you want to get lose fat? Oh, because my, my doctor said um, <laughs> my heart's really bad. Okay, well, why do you care about that? Well, because I don't want to die. Why do you care about that? Well, because I have a, a five-year-old. Mm. Ah, okay, great. And now it's very easy to shift the conversation to, yeah, okay, we'll help you with that weight loss goal, but you really want to be healthy. And here's what health really means. This is why having bigger legs or more muscle in your legs is important for your health. And this is why having stronger legs is important for your health. And this is why having a high VO2 max is important for your health. So, we'll, oh yeah, it turns out the prescription for those it's also the same prescription for fat loss. So we're going to get you all of these things. And now they're like, oh my gosh, they're so pumped and so jazzed. And they're not going to be like, oh, we got to do this interval thing again. That's not, I want to just lose fat. I want to get in. They're not going to fight you because they're so sold and so bought into what you're doing. The other flip side with muscle, you get that same thing, right? Or with, with aesthetics. So whether it's muscle or it's fat loss, because you'll come and get this one. Like I'm here for fat loss. Okay, why? Well, because like, uh, I need to lose some fat. Why do you need to lose fat? Oh, because I used to be skinnier. Why do you care about that? Okay, because I don't love how I look anymore. Okay, fine. Hey, that's not, I don't think that's actually, I like that answer because I'm like, cool. You're going to be very motivated for that. No problem. Like vanity is, you know, the ego is not the enemy all the time. That's sometimes a good reason. So you say, okay, fine. Yeah, we're going to get you back down to what you look like in the end. But eventually 
when they get that goal, they're going to be on to the next one, which is, okay, well, now what do you want to do? And eventually that's almost always going to come back to health too. It's like, I, I want to live longer, right? People always want to live longer and want to live better. So, so once you have those really good conversations with people and you can start as you're chipping away, for example, with the fat loss, you can start just making little comments and seeing if they're picking up well other things right and you just slowly over time have these conversations about expanding why they're there and so you're like yeah yeah we're, we're gonna hit the fat loss goal look we're in progress but now we should start thinking about your next goal because we're gonna kill this one what do you think the next one should be right and you just start moving these things forward and you can shift it to to a more more appropriate more sustainable um goal so i think that's that's the the real key for a lot of these people totally and that comes full circle to the adherence right so right why you would actually commit to doing those sessions. It's, you know, it's so much more of a driving factor when you've got that really key why that is, I think, you know, beyond the aesthetics. I think that's a great goal to have. But yeah, because goals change constantly uh, or you hit goals. Like what happens if a client comes to you and they say, my goal is to add, you know, to 10 pounds of muscle and then, okay, they hit that. Like you're done now. If you weren't if you weren't building another goal along the way, they're gonna get the end of it. I got my ten pounds. See ya. Thank you. I'm out. Mm. Damn. So you use that early motivation to start having the conversation about more long term sustainable goals, right? So yeah, we're gonna get that. And along the way, let's also talk about well, what's the next one? So by the time you're even remotely close to hitting that first goal, you should already be thinking what's next. And is the more you can make those sustainable goals, um, things that are going to Make them do things like, uh, I'll give you an example of a sustainable goal. Um, how do you feel today? Mm. Did you notice how you had better energy today? Oh, you're sleeping better. You haven't gotten sick as much this year. Like those are like, hell, hell yeah. Like I don't care what happened to my back squat now because I'm like, I love not being sick as often. I love having more energy and not being, you know, dragging ass all day. Like those are going to weigh much more on people's motivation than I just want to look a little bit better because it's summertime. Okay, but those are short-term goals. Those are short-term motivations. you got to build those longer-lasting ones. Absolutely. And, you know, we do this with our clients as well because, as you know, like fat loss and muscle gain are goals that take more time, right? So if that's your only goal and, you know, in week two, well, nothing's changed, it can be very (laughs) easy to start to lose compliance, be pissed off or whatever, blame your practitioner or blame the training program. But if you can keep that perspective, oh, no, actually, I'm waking up feeling energized or I'm, you know, going to the toilet more regularly or I'm sleeping better. Like there's a multitude of health factors that when you tap into can feed your compliance, which helps your adherence. It's not just about like a long-term goal that we have to acknowledge does take time. That's a, that's a really fantastic point, right? Like I, what, what's how going to happen the first six weeks when they've only lost two or three pounds. That looks like you failed, mm. right? It's like, Oh, we failed. I've only lost. The goal was 10 pounds in six weeks. We've only lost four pounds in six weeks. You failed, right? Oh yeah. By the way, exactly. Like you said, but if you're tracking other things, like, yeah, you, well, you know, we've only lost four pounds, but man, you've been in a way better mood. You haven't had nearly as many fights with your wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, you, you're doing way better on your, your, your job. You're being much more productive, blah, blah, blah. Well, now all of a sudden, since those were tracking, those were part of the goal, 
Now you've hit five or six goals and you, you're halfway through goal six. That looks like a, the exact same result is now a phenomenally productive six weeks instead of a complete fail in six weeks. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It is about just connecting with, yeah, lots of other factors of health and also learning to pick up on those signals. I think a lot of people in this day and age, they're, their self-care or their health as a priority is pretty low down the list and they're quite disconnected. So, you know, I have a client that might say to me, oh, nothing's different. I don't feel any different. I don't really feel like it's working. And then the mm. next sentence, they'll tell me like they've had their, half their medication. And I'm like, right, oh, okay, right, right. that's not a sign that things are working. And like, they just kind of don't get it. But I feel like a lot of it is that disconnection that takes time to reestablish with your body and to be able to be aware of the things that, you know, are beyond that, that primary goal. Yeah, that's, that's just because, uh, you know, you haven't taught them to listen. So one of the things that you can do is force the issue a little bit. Mm. Just start taking, um, you know, every day they show up, just have them chart and how they feel today, or what their mood was today, how motivated they are right, to work out today. Whatever, things like that. Keep it very simple. Two, maybe three things you can check. Uh, stuff like that, and they will start to feel themselves. But another part of that also is how you're actually coaching them through the sessions. So are you allowing them to outsource their own physiology to technology? And, I mean, this is, this is my book, right? Uh, the title of my book, like, this is what it's all about. If you let them outsource their own physiology to technology, how will they ever learn their own physiology? It's never going to happen. So if you are using that modality yourself, how are you going to ever complain that that's happening to them? Like you, you, you created the problem. Like you told them, don't worry about feeling anything because we'll just take care of what's this technology. And now you're going to complain when they don't feel differences. You just cost yourself your own job. <laughs> Mm, fascinating area. So tell us more about your book and, and where we can learn more about it online. Uh, it's called Unplugged, mm -hmm. uh, Evolving from Technology to Upgrade Your Fitness, Performance, and Consciousness. So it's really got three parts, uh, but the, I think what your audience will most care about is the first one, fitness. And the last word in the, in the title of consciousness is really reflective of not like a spirituality consciousness or a metaphysical one, but really are you just simply being aware of what the technology is doing for your fitness? Um, so we cover everything from some of these conversations we've been having, but even more specifically uh, like heart rate monitors, um, tracking apps on your phone, how these things are productive, but how they're actually causing a tremendous amount of harm and how they're demotivating people. Uh, there's, there's been several studies that have come out now that show it doesn't matter which product you're using, but any of those products on your phone or your watch that track your steps throughout the day, uh, they can actually lead to more weight gain than a lot of people because people are, are deterred when they step up and realize, oh my God, again, I didn't get my 10,000 steps. Like again, I'll tell that I'm just going to have pizza tonight. Um, and, and so when you put people, especially obese people on these things, uh, the clinical data is now showing that people are more likely to gain weight when they're aware of these things. And the fundamental problem is, like I just outlined, you're telling people that don't worry about your own physical health, don't pay attention to your own body, just, just pay attention and do whatever the watch tells you to do. And those technologies are extremely stupid. They're not nearly as accurate as you think, and they don't understand context. Um, they are not thinking about this, the body as an entire system. They just look at one tiny variable 
and then tell you what to do. So uh, I don't know how much more data we need to show that these things are very ineffective, if not just completely inaccurate. So that doesn't mean they don't have any use. The book um, clearly shows a bunch of examples of how to use them and how they can help. And if you're a trainer or a coach, you should be using them to your advantage. But we just don't want people to get taken advantage of by them. So that, that's sort of the basis of the book. Awesome. I look forward to getting my hands on a copy. I'm sure there's, you know, heaps more that we can learn from you. I've loved waxing lyricals with you today. I could definitely keep chatting, but um, I feel we've covered lots of amazing myths and misconceptions and really clarified, um, you know, what is a, a great way to approach health as that number one priority or goal. Andy, it's been so great to have you on the show. Thank you for everything that you do. And I hope to speak to you again soon. That was a real pleasure. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.